welcome to the Makers of Minnesota podcast, where we talk to cool people doing cool things. And Emily V. Cray is a very cool person. Not only does she make cool, delicious, fantastic spirits, but she's also written a cookbook called Camp Cocktails. She has a distillery up in Duluth that's right before the bridge. That's a fantastic place to have a cocktail when you're up in Duluth. And you're just kind of an all-around foodie person who I love. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. This is like my favorite intro I've ever gotten. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> well, I still, I was like the biggest geek all of growing up. So it's still a shocking when anybody thinks I'm cool. <laughs> okay. So you went from like food geek, science geek, nerd geek to making spirits and all Yeah, to like booze geek. <laughs> yeah. Where did you grow up? Uh, in Duluth. Mainly okay. we moved to Duluth when I was four. So this so, is your hometown in effect is Duluth. So it's my hometown. Exactly. And it's, um, you know, a place that I fell in love with growing up here because of the wilderness and the lake and the outdoor opportunities in the community and was very sad to leave, but of course left for education and to pursue career and didn't really ever think I would have the opportunity to live back here, but was called back by the lake in this idea to start a distillery. What was so funny was I think the first time I was in the distillery was I I was doing some work with Hoops, the brewery. Oh, yeah. And they were like, have you been to the distillery over there? I was like, no, I haven't. So I went and I was immediately charmed because it's a very charming building and it's right at the base of the um, the bridge there and lovely. But then I had like the first gin cocktail that I ever liked at your place. <gasps> Thank you. Uh, I always say it appears to be my calling to turn gin haters into gin lovers. It's exactly what happened because I was like, gin, you know, I just, I was a vodka drinker. I'm not a big whiskey drinker. Frankly, when I started drinking, I wasn't super sophisticated about what I was doing. <laughs> and so I had many of gin. us were, right? Yeah. And I'd had gin and it was just a gross experience, like probably from my dad or something. I don't even know. So at your place, I was like, oh, gin can be lovely. And there's lots of kinds of gin. Mm -hmm. So was gin your first spirit that you made? Gin was our first spirit that we made. I have long been a gin lover. I, uh, <laughs> I, I started like experiencing spirits in a weird way. Cause actually the first spirit that I ever had was Campari oh, um, yeah. with my aunt in Norway. And we would have Campari and tonic <laughs> sitting outside for happy hour when I was like 18, 19. And so uh, I just developed a fondness for Campari and then discovered the Negroni. And then sure. I was like, gin is awesome. And uh, because uh, we felt so called by the lake and the North woods to come back here. And that's such a huge source of inspiration. Gin not only did I love it, but it felt like a great, great fit and creative fit to start from when we were starting the distillery because everything about it kind of says northern and north woods and boreal forest with the, the piney flavors, but the opportunity to introduce different spices and things like that too. So at this point, do you have three gins based? You have boreal, cedar. I love confusing naming conventions. It's apparently my thing. Um, so they're all three called the boreal gins because they're all inspired by the boreal woods. And so we have juniper, spruce, and cedar. Okay. Juniper, spruce, and cedar. All right. So, okay. You've got the three gins. And then from there, what was the next iterations that interested the you? 
the next thing that we made was Akavite. And so I also knew, you know, from the moment we decided to start a distillery, I knew we were going to make an Akavite because growing up, I'm a dual citizen of Norway and the United States and grew up in Norway a lot also. And Akavite is the kind of national spirit of all of the Scandinavian countries and was what I, so I guess I lied. Well, Campari was my first spirit that I drink, but drank, but I knew about Akavit because all of the grownups always had Akavit at like Christmas and sit in the mine growing up. And so Akavit was probably the second spirit I ever had. And I knew that we had to make an Akavit. It was just part of, part of my heritage, part of who I am. What makes Aquavit so special? Because you have Aquavit and then also Gamel Ode has it. Mm-hmm. And it feels like your both of your versions are really different. Yes. So kind of like gin um, has to be a neutral spirit infused with juniper berries and then has a number of other botanicals that are traditionally in there, but you can do a lot of different things. You can make it more citrusy. You can make it more spicy. You can make it more floral. The same goes for Akavit. So it's a base of a neutral spirit that has to be infused with either caraway or dill or both. And then from there, you can also build in other botanicals and flavors. And so Gamla Ode really leans on dill in his Akavits, which is tends to be a more summery style of Akavit. Uh, to be paired with shellfish and fish. We uh, use caraway because that's my preference. And that tends to be both for summer and winter aquavites, celebration aquavites, um, things like that. Like I grew up with dill aquavite really being just for pairing with fish and shellfish. And I wanted to make a, a one that was in the style, or we actually need two, but in the style of like a more versatile aquavite that would be really great as a cocktail base as well. One thing that I think is really interesting about you and your distillery and also your cookbook is you're very entrenched in the terroir of Duluth, of the lake, of this, of the climate that you're in. Your whole uh, cookbook for craft cocktails is about foraging. It, like you've been, in my mind, you've been very successful that you're like kind of this little engine that could that people maybe, you're not like super flashy, but you're very earnest. You're very Nordic. Has that been sort of what drives you? Because, you know, there's a lot of flashy cocktail companies in the Twin Cities Mm -hmm. and a lot of people doing great things. And you just keep trucking along with really creative, interesting stuff, Emily. Thank you. Uh, That means a lot to me, actually. Um, Yeah, I would say our, and, you know, I am, we're friends with and admire and love many of the places in the Twin Cities sure. for sure. Right. But um, I definitely feel passionate about being very authentic to who we are up here and very personal. And what drives me is community and beauty and not like trends, not flat, but just, you know, earnest, but with a, you know, a glint in my eye, like my good dose of snark. Um, <laughs> but it just, you know, like in, when you're, said like when you come into our space it's very cozy it's not like we hired an interior designer to like lay out the space it's like we want people to feel like they stepped into our living room and are having a drink with us and are invited into our community and to like really be part of a community not just like a brand that's out to sell stuff you know we have to sell stuff we're a business sure and uh, I think we make the best stuff you could possibly have. And so it's just like really enjoyable. But for me, what cocktails are about is about creating and about community and inviting people to be part of that. Is it different being a woman? Do you think? I think it is. I I definitely think it is. It's something that 
you know, I've never had the experience of not being a woman. (laughs) So, you know, so I don't have that counterfactual, but I definitely do notice, um, uh, internal and external pressures to carry myself in a particular way that is driven, but not too overtly driven because that's intimidating. That is like serious enough that I'm not like ditzy, but not so serious that people are like, Oh, she's a bitch. Sorry. You probably can't swear on your podcast. Yeah, you can. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so I, I do notice, and I've been reflecting on it a lot, especially this last year that there is a lot of, um, you know, underlying mental energy that goes into navigating business as a woman that I assume that I would not have to put in if I were a man, because, you know, I see my husband, I see people who don't and who just like waltz into a room and yell at people. And people are just like, Oh, that's what they're like. You know, Oh, they're charismatic. And you're like, no, they were mean. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. Um, I just read a book from my book club and I might have to send you a copy. It's about, data points and how the data driven world is sort of set up for men. Mm -hmm. And it talked about performance reviews and how women in performance reviews are bossy, bitchy, um, uh, overbearing. Like they had all these words that they talked about with women in performance reviews, too aggressive, too direct. Mm -hmm. And then in the male performance reviews, those same terms, direct, aggressive, leader, they were all like seen as positive traits where in the female reviews, they were 98% perceived as negative traits. Mm -hmm. So we're even describing like a man who's aggressive is seen as like a ball buster or really going after it. And a woman who's aggressive is seen as a bitch or too much Mm -hmm. or needs to dial it back. Yeah. In the spirit world. I mean, I got to believe that you're just soaked in that. Oh, big time, big time, you know, and we're so lucky to work with many amazing partners, but I, you know, you still definitely notice when you walk into a room that it's full of like men in polos or flannels (laughs) for the most part. And you do have to, you do have to carry yourself in a particular way. And I, you know, even in our company, we have a leadership team that is me and two women, women, and then a gay man. And so it's like freeing in a way, but I notice even there, like, and not as a criticism to anybody, it's, we're so steeped in it, right? That it's unconscious. And so it's like, oh yeah, even in that context, like there's some difference. Yeah. And, and that does, you talk about like the mental energy. One of the things that I'm noticing with COVID just in work in general is everybody who started working from home. Well, working from home was not great for some people and great for others. Like obviously there's pros and cons, but one thing that did get stripped out of the workday was all the mental energy that went into the politics and the Mm -hmm. showing up and the way you showed up and the clothes that you wear and the way that you were perceived in a room because zoom just didn't have that same zoom was like the great um, equalizer in some respects. Mm -hmm. And now people are going back into those environments and they are realizing how much energy is going into all of those other factors, just showing up every day and they don't Mm -hmm. love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They don't love it. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So I I know it's something I think about a lot is like, how can we yeah, create environments where it's, yeah, it's just more comfortable for people where we're showing up as ourselves, as our best selves, right? Like it's not an excuse to be a grouch or whatever, but to like be your authentic self and to be, to be valued for that. And 
for us all to have, yeah, just like grace towards each other. Yeah. What made you decide to get into the craft canned cocktail scene? Because I, I don't know, you know, this, I, your Frenchie like changed my life because Aww, I'm a massive French 75 person. And yeah. then Briar has also shown up on a ton of my tables. Your your craft cocktails in the cans are very, I don't want to demean you by saying they're feminine because I feel like that's a real positive and that's why I love mm-hmm. them. They're very subtle, but they're lovely. They're beautiful. The cans are beautiful. The illustrations. What made you decide to go into the canned cocktail business? Yeah. So, and it it is interesting and I think more, you might see from us more and more me stepping into like just owning the fact that I'm a woman in business and there's not that many of us in spirits and like it doesn't all have to be brown and western stripped and old fashions exactly like love old fashions but it's there are plenty of people doing that I'm gonna do my own thing and so the canned cocktails actually came about I came up with the idea even before um you know, canned cocktails were becoming this big thing because I have two kids and I make cocktails and spirits for a living. But at the end of the day, I'm sitting down on the couch and I'm like, I don't want to measure anything. I don't want to have to get out multiple ingredients. And I was like, there's got to be other people like me who love a good cocktail, who love, you know, a French European aperitif style cocktail that are those like lighter drinking, sophisticated floral or bitter flavors but who just doesn't always feel like measuring and shaking. And I was like, I'm going to, and I was visiting with my friend, Marit, I had a, you know, baby exhausted. I was like, Marit, what I really want right now is for us to be having French 75s. It's not going to happen. Um, I don't have enough hands. And then I was like, what we need is French 75s in a can. It's like, I'm going to make a French 75 in a can and I'm going to call it Frenchie. And I'm going to put a French bulldog on it. And the idea just like burst to life in my head. And (laughs) then I built it from there. And is it a huge seller or am I like alone in just, because I tell everyone I know about this. Oh, thank you. Um, It is, you know, there's a definite adjustment that people are still going through toward to mentally see the differentiation between the like, hard seltzers or the cocktails that are just full of flavorings and things like that, that are really cheap in a can. And so then they see these cans and they're like, well, why would I pay $17.99, $20 for this four pack um, when this hard seltzer is like $6.99? Um, but it's just a different beast. Yeah. When it's a little polka dotted one beast. Can, like, do I need to <laughs> yeah. sell these? I mean, come on people. And a hard yeah. seltzer for most most hard seltzers are crappy. There's a few yeah. that are good, but a lot of them are terrible. Yeah. And so, but it is a big seller. It's just been, I know a lot of the liquor stores and people we work with have been really impressed. Yeah. <laughs> and slightly no, taken aback. They didn't think it would work. Yeah. And and partly too, if you look at the wine industry and how many people buy bottles of wines based on the labels, mm-hmm. you've got really cute illustrations. It looks really fun. Thank you. They're all hand drawn. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to grab these. These look real sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How they're all Duluth- inspired by French, like French um, candy shops. <laughs> yeah. That's what they look like. They look yeah. like, uh, what is the name of the macaroon? Is it Laurie? Yes. The that French is macaroon? one of the, that was on my vision board. <laughs> that's funny. See, I you got called that. it. <laughs> How has Duluth changed from a foodie perspective and a cocktail perspective? Because 
it was sort of had all this momentum. And then I think COVID kind of sucked the momentum out of some of these food businesses. And are we seeing that revival again? Because we've certainly seen it there in the arts community and the outdoor community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Duluth has been a hard place for a lot of people to try to start a food or a beverage business for sure. I mean, breweries are doing great, but um, yeah, I think just unless you're in kind of the tourist area, the, the there's just not that many people who live here. And with the margins that restaurants have traditionally worked with, it's really, really challenging. And I can, I can see that from the inside now, how challenging that is. Um, and then when you're in a tourist area, it just is like, you're catering to such different kinds of tourists. It's hard to, it's hard to put your stake in the ground in one particular place. And I've seen that also. And so since, well, certainly when, when I grew up here, there was like very little. And uh, since moving back, it's been really inspiring to see people starting up more restaurants, starting up more bars, really having that vision and being like, well, Duluth, you know, can like, if Portland, Maine can do it, Duluth can do it. Yeah. And I really believe that I really, really do. But I agree. COVID was a really hard hit for a lot of people. Um, the good side of it is that the Duluth community, the people who live here really stepped up to support local businesses and people were really passionate about that and, you know, got the takeout, really wanted to see people succeed and make it through a lot of the places pivoted to just food truck. And I think are also, it's, you know, it's interesting to watch places like the scenic, like um, some of these other food trucks where it's like, oh gosh, yeah, the overhead for this is way better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Scott um, Graydon is someone that we've talked to on the news. Yeah, and cafe. it will be interesting to see where they choose to go from here because, you know, if you can get fantastic food without that much overhead, um, you know, will they ever decide to go to the full full service dining experience? Um, and there, it, it, I've noticed, you know, more and more good food trucks really getting their start since the city has kind of changed a little bit of the zoning and made that easier, which I'm really excited about because I see some of these entre- food entrepreneurs getting their feet under them and really getting um, their business model down. And some of them are looking to yep. transition to brick and mortar. So I think the momentum is hopefully coming back. Yeah. Watching how Duluth is investing in tourism and in some of the neighborhood development, it's definitely a work in progress. It's not going to be perfect. Not everybody's going to be happy for sure, but it. um, it feels like some of the momentum is coming back and I, I really hope it is because yeah, all these little, the, all the small food entrepreneurs are so inspiring. It's interesting. I have a cabin in Ely. And so one of the things that Duluth did that was really smart is they very much leaned into the outdoors, the lakes, mm-hmm. the mountain biking, the ski trails and the superior national forest. And Ely is sort of starting to do that a little bit more too. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that means that we'll get, uh, someone was saying this summer that there were like 112 homes for sale in Ely at the beginning of the summer. And by the end of the summer, there was only like a handful left. Mm-hmm. All of these people that have decided that they can work from home and still do their jobs, which would have prevented them from living in a community like Ely, can now have their jobs and also have their hobby businesses that maybe will become things like restaurants or brick and mortar or bars that are maybe doing something a little bit different or farm to table restaurants or even foraging as a business. Mm -hmm. So I feel like COVID in a lot of ways has changed how we're working and it's also allowed for way more entrepreneurism. And I see some of that coming up in Duluth too, I think. 
I agree. I a hundred percent agree. I think COVID changed the way we worked, um, made a lot of people take stock of their work and what they really wanted to be doing and their working conditions and all of that. And I do think also just like, and a lot made a lot of people stop and be like, why am I living in this super expensive city? You know, the Bay area, the yeah. New York, wonderful places, but so expensive right now, Seattle. Um, and are like, I could go and have this amazing quality of life and live in a house that actually fits my family for half the amount I'm paying for my apartment and keep working on the computer. And then when those people move, then those are people who can start putting money into the local economy yeah. and supporting the small businesses that help those businesses thrive. And, you know, way more than big businesses, small businesses put their money back into the local economy. And so it can become I think it's a very 78%. Positive. Yeah. Right. And so it can become a very positive cycle. And so I'm very hopeful that this kind of reorganizing of where people live and where commerce is centered, can be kind of decentralized mm-hmm. so that more and more small communities have these engines of support. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think I've been fortunate enough to be in the food world, but like you look at like what a Ruth's Gourmet does to a town when they start manufacturing this product, then, you know, you look at what you guys have done in, you look at Bent Paddle and how fast they've grown, you know, there is a lot of opportunity. So I'm excited about, um, I'm also a super, I love Duluth. My niece went to school there. I do Mm -hmm. the Art and Bayfront Park Festival every year. And we're trying to figure out how to, how to entrench ourselves a little bit more in the community so that that event, while it's very successful and we love it, we want to more year round be able to impact mm-hmm. what's happening with those makers in Duluth. And speaking of makers, Emily, you're going to be involved in my dinner series that I'm hosting mm-hmm. at the Lexington for the makers of Minnesota. It'll be November 30th. Tickets are on sale now. It's the third of our dinner series. And I really just want to thank you for participating with us. It's going to be such a fun event. I feel like, I still feel like there's people that don't know that you guys are from Duluth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know it is always, it means when you are entrenched in something, you forget how much other people aren't. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right? And so then you go out into a different community or different world and people aren't yeah like in the distilling world and they just yeah they they haven't heard of you and you're like well great because that's an opportunity to to chat with this person now too and make a connection yes and we are gonna have you will be there we have a redhead creamery that's gonna be there and we're just gonna have a great opportunity to sit experience the products of some of these makers and really just have a good time being together. It will be at the Lexington. It's November 30th. You can find tickets at thelexmn.com. And I appreciate you being with us today and just sharing a little bit more of your story. I'm a huge homer, so I'll just keep promoting you as much as I can. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's yeah. super fun. You do a great job. Conversations. You make great products. And next time I'm up in Duluth, I'll make sure to stop by and have a drink. Please do. Okay. Thanks, Emily. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. 